wish people could read, read the transcripts of what they complain about each day. I wish they could. I wish they could sit down every night and just read everything they complained about. And then I'd like them to read it to other people. I think that would be really neat. There's so much good out there, but life is how you want to see it. If you want to find the bad, good news, you can find it. If you want to find the good, good news, you can find it. I would implore people to realize that practical optimism is a much better framework on life than default pessimism. Just wish people could read, read the transcripts of what they complain about each day. All right, we've got your Bible. You can turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It's in your outline. It'll be on the screen. Um, I am in the CSB, so if you have your Version Bible app, you can uh, follow along word for word. But that's Philippians 2, 14. It's kind of our uh, basis, and we'll look at a couple other supporting scripture. Um, but today, I want to talk to you about uh, a single decision that you can make as a Christian that will completely transform your life and not only your life, but probably the life of the people that you interact with on a consistent basis, even on a daily basis. So are you ready for it? Here it is. Stop complaining. Stop complaining. You can write that down. It's in your outline because I want you to take it with you. Stop complaining. I felt like I can read this verse, Philippians 2.14, where Paul wrote to the church at Philip. Uh, the Philippian church to the Philippians at Philippi, and he said this, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, oftentimes, I don't just preach from one passage of scripture, and I'm going to look at this more in context toward, at the very end, but that's standalone. Like, I can come out, read that, say, let's obey that, let's do that, and that's really all that you need if we are followers of Jesus, and we want to do what he says, and we want to obey his word. It's simple, it's clear, it's very understandable, do everything without grumbling and arguing. But as followers of Jesus, what do we do with instructions like this by Paul, especially living in a world full of division, partisan politics, and self-centered, be-who-you-want-to-be ideology? See, because grumbling and arguing have become this common and almost expected behavior and attitude in our culture. Like, if you're not complaining about something, if you're not arguing about something, if you're not grumbling about something, like, you, you know, you're weird. you, you got to take a side. You've got to be on one side or the other politically, be one side uh, or the other in this, um, you know, I idea or thought or opinion or situation. You've got to take sides. you got to complain about something. It, it's expected of us. It, it's commonplace these days. So why do people complain? Well, there's a few things. You can write these down. Um, there may be many, many more, but th these are some umbrellas that might fit several different reasons why. Number one, they believe they deserve more than they received. Why do we complain? We believe we, we, we deserve more than we receive. The, the other is um, they don't get their way. Why do people complain? Why do we complain? Why do I complain sometimes? I don't get my way. I want things to be a certain way. I want to, uh, things to be a certain way in a certain amount of time. I believe that I deserve more than I received, and so therefore I'm going to complain, I'm going to grumble, and I'm going to argue because things aren't my way, and I didn't receive what I felt that I should receive. The third one is this. They forget God's blessing in the past and ignore His blessings in the present. I forget what God's done for me in the past, and I'm so focused on not getting what I want, 
not having it my way, not getting what I feel like I deserve, or in the time that I deserve it, I'm so focused on those things that I ignore what God's doing in the present. I ignore just how blessed I am in the present. It was funny. Um, I met this guy, and I actually see him at the gas station all the time, and found out that he's like a supervisor with the transportation department for the Columbia, Columbia County Schools. So just in having conversation, I asked him how things were going leading up to the first week of school, and then I saw him after the first week of school and asked him how things were going, and he actually didn't grumble or complain. He was just, uh, he expressed that there were challenges and if you pay attention to local news, you will see and you will know. And if you follow people on Facebook who have kids in middle school or high school, you will know that um, they, can't, they basically enforced a state law, which has been a state law for a long time, that if your middle school or high schooler lives within a mile of their middle school or high school, they are requiring some of them to walk to school because they are shorthanded on bus drivers. And so therefore they can't run buses to pick everyone up and they're doing what they can to park in certain places where they can pick up more kids. And so there were parents in Columbia County complaining that their child was going to have to walk to school, even though you all did it in the snow uphill for two miles. But now, like, their kid can't walk to school. So, so there was that complaint that was leading up to school. And so they tried to make some adjustments to accommodate some of that. And then the week, the first week of school, then parents were complaining that the buses were over full with students. We're grumbling generation. We're a grumbling generation. We live in a time where complaining is expected, where it's commonplace. And so what do we do as Christians when we see this truth wrapped in one scripture to do everything without grumbling and complaining or grumbling and arguing? Complaining, grumbling, you can, that, that's interchangeable. See, because the church isn't immune to this. Even over the last several years, we've merged with uh, a few different churches, and you, you bring people into a new um, situation. But in some cases where churches were literally on the brink of death, and it's not just new passion. I'm, I'm a part of a network uh, of pastors, and um, a lot of churches even trying to make transitions to, to make some changes and to see some new life come to their churches that are dying and that are um, struggling. Um, the, the, I, I met one pastor this past year that's up in Michigan, and he's got a church of about maybe 30 people left that he's trying to um, trust God to breathe some new life into and trying to lead that congregation. They have a, a buildings that are over 50 years old, or maybe it was older than that, that, that um, are, are, you know, uh, valuable to a lot of people. A lot of church planners would love to have that. And, and the challenges along with that, but, but the challenges that come even with trying to lead people through that change and through that new life. So it's not just new passion, but it's other pastors, it's other churches that see this same thing, but churches that are literally on the brink of death. I can only speak of my experiences and what I hear consistently and see consistently but through a merger or through a replant, see that God provides that remnant of people, a, a new church family, a new purpose for the, those facilities, and essentially revive what had become lifeless. But in time, people forget and they take their eyes off of where they were, 
That they forget those mile markers, that we were on the brink of death, that we didn't know how we were going to pay our bills this month, or we, we were digging into our savings by thousands of dollars, just doing what we could to survive, or we were relying on very generous givers because we just didn't have the, 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 the large enough group to, to make things happen, and we forget where we were, and we ignore what God's doing in the present. We ignore the life change that's happening. We ignore the, the salvations that are happening. We ignore the children that are now running through the halls that used to not be there because the, the, the church was dying. There were no children. There was no next generation. There were no teenagers. There were no young adults. And so we ignore what God's doing in the present, and we grumble that we can't have things our way the way they were when the church was dying. It might be things as simple as because for years there has been wars over music. And so it, it could be that it's not my preferred style or songs. I love the fact that in our mergers, those folks who stayed with us and who have plugged in at New Passion and become New Passion, that they, yes, maybe had a preferred style of music. Yes, they may have had a preferred uh, list of music. They liked the old hymns or whatever, but at some sense they came to the place where they made a declaration that maybe for 60 or 70 years, you know what, I got to go to a church that I love, and I got to go to a church that had the music that I appreciate. But you know what, I want to take the next 20 years of my life, I want to take the rest of my life, and I want to help develop and build a church that the next generation will love, and the next generation will appreciate, and the next generation can raise their children in. It doesn't mean we ignore all of the old songs or different style songs, but it means that things change in time and we can forget that change and what God uses in that change to bring life and life change because we're so focused on the past and so focused on not getting our way. People will complain in the church and even out in the world that they didn't get the title or the position that they wanted or the opportunities that they wanted and felt they deserved. I had a leader that was with us for some time that had asked me one time to let him preach. And that, that's a little, I grew up, you know, you just, that's not something you ask for. Hey, uh, pastor, can I preach? But he got upset because I let other people in time preach, but not them. But I was thinking through, and it's like, we all play roles. Just because it's this mentality, just because I want to do something or I ask to do something, I should be able to do something. But I, I think through some of the things that you do, soldiers and dispatchers and public service people, and, and it's like you play the role that you play in your organization, and if you're a dispatcher, you don't ask, uh, you don't go out and fight the fire. You dispatch the fire truck and the, the firefighters to go fight the fire. We all play roles, but this is mentality of I want to do this, and so therefore, I should get to do this. If not, I'm going to grumble and I'm going to complain. And that's not just in the church. That's out in the real world, in your job and in your life as well. This mentality that because I want to do something, I should be able to do it. It's called entitlement. That's what we call it. I'm entitled to this because I've been here. I've been faithful. I've been loyal. But we wouldn't let someone up here that couldn't sing a tune or when they strum the guitar, it's, you know, out of key. That's why I'm not on the worship team. But I could go to Carell, who uh, essentially answers to me. He's on my staff team. And I could say, I want to sing. I want to play the guitar. I've been here for almost 13 years. I started the church. 
I deserve it. And he would laugh at me probably once I auditioned and realized that that's not my gift or my talent. But I could be entitled because of who I am and because of my position and because of my title, and I could demand my own way, and then I could grumble and I could complain because I don't get my way. There's not enough people who look like me or who are a part of my specific life stage. We hear that. We see that in the church. And this mentality is a consumer mentality desiring only to enjoy what's provided for people rather than seeing that I'm on mission and I'm a missionary and I am called to help the church grow in diversity. Uh, We want our church to look more like heaven. We don't want our church just to be considered a white church. We are predominantly white. We won't always be predominantly white or at least not so predominantly that people would look and go, that's a white church. Why? Because heaven was every nation, every tongue, every race, every nation, every color. That's who we want to be, and that's who we're going to be. But it takes groups of people. It takes not only people of different nationality and different races, but it also takes people in different life stages who might be a single parent and say, hey, I don't, there's not a lot of single parents here right now. There's not a lot of this life stage that I'm in right now, but you know what? I'm going to be on mission, and I'm going to look forward. I'm not going to look at what isn't, and I'm not going to complain about it, but I'm going to look forward and say, you know what? I know other single parents. If I don't plant myself here, then the next single parent that comes isn't going to plant themselves here either. The next person of my race or my nationality isn't going to plant themselves here either because they're going to come in, and they're going to look around, and they're going to say, there's no one like me. But if I'm a missionary and I commit myself to know that I'm on mission, yes, it might feel a little awkward. One of the greatest experiences that we ever had was before we planted New Passion. We um, went to a church. My friend was uh, one of the youth leaders or directors there, Latasha. And we were planting the church in Grovetown, which is a very diverse area because of military. So you get a lot of different races and people from the north and the west and, you know, all over. And so I wanted to go to a church to check it out that was more diverse so we could learn from them. So getting into this church, I would love this one day for people to come into New Passion. There'd be multiple services and you have to literally sit in line in your car to get into church. That's how it was. And so as we're sitting in line, everybody exiting, we're black individuals, black families. And so I text her real quick and I asked her, I forget what I asked her, but she said, um, I forget the words, but she replied something about, there's a little bit of salt, but mainly pepper. So my, my idea of the diversity was a little bit off. And so when we get there, our children in the children's environment were the only white kids there. When we went into service, there was one white guy, I knew him from Twitter, and so he was the, uh, besides him, we were the only white couple there. So for those of you who are of different race, I understand how it can feel because I felt like a spotlight was on me because I knew I was different. I knew that I probably stood out like a spotlight was on me because I'm white. But it was the most friendly church. Like, like you, 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 you felt that discomfort. You felt that difference. But, but man, we were loved. We, we did joke that they didn't have to even check our security tag when we picked up our kids. 
because they're like, I think these are yours. <laughs> but we asked our kids at young age, this was in 2009, we said, what, 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 was there anything different? Like, did they see through their their childlike eyes, was there anything different that you experienced today? And you know what they said? Yeah, they had a playground outside. <laughs> they, 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 didn't, they didn't feel that awkwardness. They didn't feel that difference. And we never got a chance to take our team up, but I wanted to. I wanted them to understand that we don't just want a church of people who look like us who are in our life stage, who are, are our nationality, who speak like us, who you, you could go down the line. We are going to be a different church. But there are people who don't see the bigger picture and they complain that we've not gotten there yet and they're unwilling to be on mission and they're unwilling to plant themselves and to um, help the church grow in diversity. Or the church doesn't do enough outreach or have enough Bible studies or do enough fellowships and things for the church family. And with this, once again, people don't see the full picture because the more outreach we do, the less time we have for Bible studies. The more fellowship we do, the less time we have for outreach. The more Bible studies, the less time to live out what we're studying. It takes balance. But in the church, I can only speak from my experience, these are the things that people complain about. And oftentimes they say, I'm going to take my ball, I'm going to take my money, I'm going to take my service, I'm going to take my family, and I'm going to go home, or I'm going to go find a place that can meet my demands right now when I want them, because we complain and we grumble when we don't get what we feel we deserve, what we want, or we don't get it in the time that we feel that we need it, or we fail to see how God is blessing in the moment, and we forget how God's blessed us in the past because we're so focused on those other things. And so most complaints come down to someone not getting their way. That's for me, and that's for all of us. Or we don't get our, what we feel we deserve, or we don't get what we expect in the time we expected. Churches, think of this, churches only have the challenges that we end up complaining about because God has allowed the church to remain alive. Because God has given us life and he's allowed us to be here. The only reason you would have anything today to complain about is because you're here. Because the church is here. See, but we fail to see that. We fail to see that how many churches have closed their doors over the last two years. We failed to see how many church plants closed within the first 18 to 24 months of trying to start. And we failed to see that God has blessed us far above anything we really could think or imagine or have even known to ask as a church plant from 2009 who started with 37 people, no money, and four, uh, 16 of those 37 were children who could not give, serve. All they could do was poop their diaper, run around, complain themselves, and cause problems. And yet we're here. To God be the glory. But when we forget that, we complain. When we forget and we take our eyes off of those things... The only reason we're here to have a complaint is because God has been so good to us. Tom Rainer says most of the members of dying churches would rather see the church die than change. But see, it's not just the church, but it shouldn't be the church. 
I know people and hear people all the time, and you probably do. They complain about their boss. They complain about their job, yet they keep taking a paycheck. Interesting. Some people constantly complain about anything and anyone. They're pessimists. It's like um, Gary Vee was saying. I, I mean, I just wish people, sometimes I need to, just read the transcripts of the things that I've complained about throughout the day. If we could just read the transcripts of the things we complain about and really put it in the light of how God has blessed us and really put it in the light of how blessed we are as a nation or as a church or as a people, that's why we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. They're not as blessed as we are. They're not as free as we are. They don't have it as good as we are. And maybe one day we can come to the realization of how good we have it. And it will spur into our worship on a Sunday morning. Because we walk in and we understand that we're in a comfortable building. We understand that we're not facing prison. We understand the goodness that we have received. And yet there are others who are not like that. And it will spur us to worship God in song. It will spur us to worship God in giving. It will spur us to worship Him in word and in deed and in the hearing and the applying of His word because we realize just how blessed we are. See, to complain is to place focus on ourselves, not God and not other people. To, to complain places your focus on yourself, what you haven't received, what, you, what, you, what hasn't happened for you, what you don't have compared to what other people have. In fact, the Greek transliterated word for complainer is one who is discontented with his lot in life. But Philippians 2.14 is clear. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Do everything without complaining. Everything. Y'all ready for the definition of everything? It's hard. All things. All right, so I, what Paul's saying here, I know it's difficult. It's difficult for me sometimes. Instead of the word everything, let's just use the definition. He says, do all things, not some things, not a portion of things, not the things we pick and choose, but all things, everything. That definition also means the current situation, life in general. Look up the word everything. It means the current situation, life in general. Do life. Do life in general. Do everything. Do your current situation without grumbling and arguing. Paul's instructions to the Christians at Philippi was to approach their current life situation without grumbling and arguing. It, it meant to live out every aspect of their daily life without complaining and arguing. God wants Christians. He wants every one of us who profess a faith in Christ to find contentment and satisfaction in their lot in life. Even when things don't go our way, even when things are unfavorable, even when things are difficult, even when your president's not in office, even when gas prices are high, even when food prices are high, even when it's cold, even when it's hot, even when things didn't turn out the way that you wanted them, even when you're sick, even when you're, you're struggling with something, even in the divorce, even in the, the, the not getting the promotion, even in losing your job, in all things, in everything, he wants you to find contentment and satisfaction in your lot in life. It's not easy, but that is what he wants from us. And so today, if you leave here committed and, and to, to follow this one instruction, I believe your whole life will change.
as well as the life of those that you interact with. See, we want to be attractive and we want to attract people for the sake of the gospel. And the toxicity of grumbling and complaining only repel people from us. You, you might be a complainer, yet you don't like complainers because you complain because things don't go your way. And so when you hear people complain and grumble that things aren't going their way, you don't attribute that to yourself and go, you know what, I complain too. I'm a grumbler too. No, you go, man, I don't want to be around them because they're negative. They're always complaining about stuff. They're always arguing about stuff. They're always, why? Because it's all about themselves. It's all about their outlook on life. It's all about what's not working out for their favor. So, so you don't look at them in the same way you look at yourself. When you look at yourself, you don't go, you know what, I'm being negative and I'm being toxic. No, you're thinking, man, this didn't turn out the way I want. And so you don't understand how repelling you can be to people when you constantly complain and argue. The same goes for me. I'm preaching to myself today as much as I'm preaching to anyone else because we all struggle with this. But we want to be attractive. We want to attract people for the sake of the gospel. Last week in Numbers 13 and 14, God had told Moses to send 12 leaders to scope out the land that he had promised to them, the land of Canaan. And 10 of the leaders come back. They're toxic. They're negative. They're fearful. And so they complain that the giants are going to kill them. They're fearful of this. And they begin to complain against God, saying that he's going to harm them, that he's out to, to harm them, to just kill them, to put them in harm's way. And then only two leaders, Joshua and Caleb, and primarily in the scripture, it's Caleb who, who does the talking. They, they come back positive. They come back full of faith, saying that God will deliver this land to them that he has promised. Not only did they uh, survive the land for 40 days, but they believed that God could deliver them and give them the victory. But the people, they followed the toxic, complaining, negative leaders. And we saw in the scripture and if you weren't here, go read Numbers 13 and 14, and you will see that while God spared their life, they missed out on the larger, greater blessings that God had for them. And then in Exodus 16, you will see Moses lead the Israelites to the wilderness of sin, which is quite interesting, the name, wilderness of sin. And so they, they, they travel and they don't have any food. They're hungry. It's like a few days they've gone without food and they're, 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 they, they have a hunger, they're hangry. We, we've all dealt with that as well. Some of you might not get hangry, but your spouse does or your children do. do. And so they're, 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 they're hungry. But the reason they're in this situation, just like I was talking about the church, the reason there would be anything to complain about today is because God's given the church life and he has the doors open and he's blessing and he has uh, allowed us or any other church to remain and to be there, the whole reason the Israelites could even complain in the wilderness of sin is because God delivered their ancestors through a great famine. They didn't know what they were going to do. They come pleading for mercy, and God uses Joseph to help deliver them through this famine. And then the evidence of this deliverance was their very slavery in Egypt. You don't even have to grow up in church. In fact, there's secular movies now about the... the um, the slavery that the Israelites had in Egypt. So you may have even known about that. The whole reason they were slaves in Egypt is because God multiplied them and grew them 
And so Pharaoh enslaved them for 430 years, but the very reason they were in Egypt and the very reason that they had been enslaved was because God had used that land to save them and deliver them through the famine. So even in their slavery, it was a testament to God's goodness for 430 years earlier where he brought them through a famine. They wouldn't even be there had God not brought them through the famine. They wouldn't have even been slaves had God not brought them through the famine. God then delivered and freed them from that Egyptian slavery. He sends Moses to deliver them, sends 10 plagues to deliver them. Then they're trapped by the Red Sea. They don't know what they're going to do. And once again, God delivers them. He parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry land, and then he um, takes out their enemy. So he delivers them. In Exodus 15, they complain of thirst, and the waters of Marah were bitter. And yet, once again, God provided fresh water for them. And at Elam, he gave them 12 springs and 70 date palms to provide and to supply for their need. Over and over and over and over again, we see them complain. But over and over and over again, we see God provide for them. And they're constantly um, forgetting the blessings of God in the present. They're, they're consistently ignoring and not focused on how God has blessed them in the past. They're forgetting those mile markers. They look at their present struggle their hunger or their thirst or whatever it might be. And then once again, God's, gonna, God's trying to kill us. God's trying to harm us. I mean, some of this was literally days apart, two weeks apart. Oh, what little memory we have, but we're the same way. God can bless us tremendously. And a couple weeks later, we think, oh, woe is me because my car broke down. Woe is me because something bad is going on in our life. Exodus 16, 1 through 3, I want you to see this picture where they get to in the, the, the wilderness of sin. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam, where they had God provided them 12 springs and 70 date palms, and came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt. And so, that tells you how, how close that time frame was from where he, he delivered them from their slavery. Verse 2, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. I've shared this with you in the past, but you can write it down again. A grateful spirit cannot coexist with a grumbling spirit. A, a, a grateful spirit cannot coexist with a grumbling spirit. They'd already lost their praise from um, Elam and where God had provided springs of water for them and provided date palms for them. They, they'd already forgot that. There is no gratitude there. In Exodus 15, you see them singing praises to God, and within two verses, they're complaining again. Their, their, their gratitude is overshadowed by their grumbling, and they're foolish. It would have been better if God would have just killed us as we sat by our buffets of meat and bread, ignoring the fact that the reason they had the buffet of meat and bread, the buckets of meat and bread, was because they were under harsh slavery. They were fed well so they could work hard. And they forgot that. They've taken their eyes off of that and they're grumbling. 
So here where we're called to worship God and we're called to give glory to God, we can't be grateful and grumbling at the same time. Try it. How are you going to express gratitude and then grumble at the same time? You can't do it. It's an oxymoron. It's the complete opposite. And so they're not worshiping like they're supposed to. They're not praising God like they were supposed to. Just a little bit of time from being freed from slavery. They should be worshiping God. They should be celebrating their freedom, and yet we find them grumbling once again. See, it didn't matter how many times God had delivered the Israelites or provided for them. It was never enough. And I wonder for us as American Christians who have a land of excess, who are entitled in many ways, who have great wealth and have at our fingertips anything we want, we can call food and have it delivered to our door. They didn't have food for m- multiple days, and yet they're grumbling and it was not received well. Yet we can call and we can have someone deliver it within 30 minutes. We, we, we can turn on the TV and we can press a button and we can watch a movie and be entertained in moments. We can go to a little machine. Of course, we have to earn it, but we can go to a machine if we need cash and we need money and we can put a card in and we can get money out where there's people around the world who have no money or they may make like $2 a week or $2 a month. And yet we have a land of plenty. And I wonder if it's enough. I wonder if it's enough to satisfy and enough to make us content. But what we see here is it will never be enough because you can have little, you can have water, just water, You can have date palms just to have enough sustenance to keep you alive and you'll still grumble. Or you can be like us and you can be in a land of plenty where you can go right down the road to Golden Corral and have a buffet of food today. You you can go to a steakhouse or you can go to many different places and have whatever you want at your fingertips and yet we'll still complain and we'll still grumble. It doesn't matter if you have a little or if you have a lot. We, if our focus is not on who God is, and focus on how he has blessed us, and it remain there, we will find reason to complain and grumble and argue. It doesn't matter if it's a little or if it's a lot. Why? Because it's not designed to satisfy us and to make us content. The Israelites were so self-consumed and focused on themselves, they consistently forgot God's past blessings. Instead of being grateful for God's past blessings and even their present freedom, they're free go kill a deer or something. Like, do something for yourself. Quit relying on Moses. You're free. Go go find food. Go find water. Quit grumbling and complaining. Instead of understanding I'm free, no one's whipping my back anymore. No one's beating me. No one's getting me up early in the morning to make me go labor. I'm free. So so instead of celebrating that and being focused on that, they grumbled and they complained. They argued because things weren't the way they wanted them. Psychology Today says this, when something goes wrong, it's natural to cast blame on the perceived cause of the misfortune. Where an individual casts that blame can be related, in many cases, to psychological construct known as locus of control. Locus of control refers to the degree to which an individual feels a sense of agency in regard to his or her life. Someone with an internal focus or locus of control will believe that the things that happen to them are greatly influenced by their own abilities, actions, or mistakes. 
a person with an external locus of control will tend to feel that, that other forces, such as random chance, environmental factors, or the action of others, are more responsible for the events that occur in the individual's life. The, the, the Israelites had an external locus of control. They complained against Moses, Aaron, and ultimately God. Moses was the leader. He was God's chosen leader. So they complained against him. They complained against Aaron um, as his right-hand man, probably called him a yes man because he wanted to follow after the Lord. He followed after his leader. But ultimately, God was at fault. Ultimately, they were accusing God of wanting to do them harm, God of wanting to, 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 to kill them, God withholding food from them. It had to all be God's doing because he was sovereign. He was fully in control. He was the one that sent the plagues to release them. It was fully in his capability to provide them a home, to provide them food, to provide them water, to provide them protection, but he didn't. Instead, he had them in this desert. Is that the root cause of our own grumbling and arguing and complaining? We might project it onto our leaders or onto other people, our parents, our spouse, whatever, our teacher, our boss. But ultimately, as children of God, and I'm talking to children of God today, I'm talking about the family of God, to Christians. Ultimately, as Christians, we're really complaining against God. Because if we believe that God is sovereign, we believe that he's all-powerful, we believe that he's fully in control of all things, then ultimately, isn't it his fault? Couldn't he have provided us a better job? Couldn't he have provided us a better spouse? Couldn't he have healed us? Couldn't he have provided for us? Couldn't he have done this? And the reason I'm complaining, I'm going to project it onto someone else, but ultimately, it's God's fault. Ultimately, he could have done this for me. He could have provided this for me, but he didn't. It's not about what God wants or what he's doing, or we wouldn't complain. God, what are you doing? How are you working? What is your plan? What is your purpose for this? Instead, it's about what we want, and when we want it, when we don't get it, we complain. We have to change our focus. It's not about us. In fact, Psalms 115, I go to this verse often. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heaven and does whatever he pleases. The psalmist uh, had a different declaration. Not to us, Lord, not to us. Not to our name be the glory. He's not complaining. He's not grumbling. He's not turning the focus to himself. He's saying, it's not to me. It's not about my plan. It's not about my purpose. It's not about what I want. But it's to you, God. It's about your purpose. It's about your glory. Glory to your name. That's what the psalmist points us to. A different declaration. Because we live for God's purposes and his glory alone. Just a little guide, and I'll get to our final verse here and close this out. But just a, a little guide I want to send you away with when tempted to complain. Ask these questions. One, is this an actual problem or am I just not happy about it? Is this a, an actual problem or am I just not happy about it? Is this a problem that God's not proved himself to be faithful and able to uh, accomplish and to fulfill and to provide for and to take care of 
as he has done in the past? Like, like, is this truly a problem? Or is my God big enough that he can solve the problem? Number two, are my words and attitude bringing glory to God? Are my words and attitudes bringing glory to God? Scripture tells us whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the most necessities of life do all to the glory of God. Today, when you eat lunch, do it to the glory of God. When you drink, do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, your words, your actions, your attitude, do to the glory of God. Number three, are my words and attitude beneficial to others and to the situation? Before you complain and you gripe on Facebook or social media or TikTok or to your boss or to your coworker, is it beneficial to others and to the situation, or does it just give me attention? And is it just beneficial to myself? Because oftentimes uh, it's proven psychologically we complain because we get attention for it. We gripe because people give us attention for it. Number four, am I only publicizing the problem or am I participating in the solution? Am I just publicizing the problem or is there a means by which I will be a part of the solution? Because if I'm not working to the solution, if I'm not willing to be a part of the solution, then I'm just publicizing the problem. See, that goes back to things within the church. I complain about it, but do I have a solution for it? Am I willing to get my hands dirty? Am I willing to be on mission to see this changed and to see this improved, to see this grow or whatever? Andy Stanley says, our reaction when things don't go our way says more about our confidence in God than anything else. What does your complaining say about your confidence in God? Does it say you believe he's in heaven doing as he pleases? Does it say you trust him to provide and take care of you? Does it declare that he is truly God and you're not? That his ways are higher than your ways? His ways are not your ways? That his plans are not your plans? They're his plans. And they're to give him glory, although he'll work them for our good. What does our words and our actions, what does our complaining declare about God? And I close with this, the full context of the verse Philippians 2, 13 through 16, for it is God who is working in both you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. The three final things I'm going to give you, and then we're going to pray. How to turn from complaining to worship. Understand, number one, God uses all things to accomplish his good purpose in your life. You know how you can go from complaining to worship, grumbling to praising God? You understand that whatever challenge you're facing, whatever difficulties in front of you, God is willing it and working it for your good purpose, for his good purpose in your life. You see that as God's purpose. Now you might say, God, what are you trying to accomplish and hoping to accomplish with this challenge in my life? But you see it as him willing and working his good purpose in your life. Then you can praise him. Then you can worship him rather than complain and grumble against him. Number two, refrain from the urge to grumble and arguing that it keeps us pure. Understand that refraining from the urge to grumble and arguing keeps us pure. He says, in a crooked 
and perverse generation, you will be blameless and pure children of God. Why should people, why should the nations ask, where is their God? See, that's the third thing, that our contentment with our lot in life is a witness to the lost world. Let us not grumble and complain and make our God weak and unavailable and powerless to the world. May we be like shining stars in this perverse world. And the way we're like shining stars is we avoid grumbling and complaining, understand that God is doing a great work and accomplishing his great purpose in our life. May we worship God through our suffering. May we praise him through our difficulties so that the world looks at us and sees that we're different and they don't see an absent God, but they see a God that's very present in our life, a God that is working and willing his way in us and through us, developing us to be more like his son, Jesus, not more like the world and not more like ourselves, not accomplishing things for our own good and for our own glory, but accomplishing that which is for the glory of God, knowing that in the end, it will result in our good. May the world see Jesus in us And the way they will see Jesus in us, according to this scripture, is by us refraining to grumble and argue. May we be people that are marked by our worship and our praise rather than our grumbling and our arguing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I repent. I'm a grumbler. I repent that I complain way too much. God, may I, along with this group of people who have heard from your word, may we choose to do things differently in our life. Convict us today if this is us. Convict us, Lord, throughout the weeks when we complain, when we grumble, when we argue. May we change our focus from what we're not getting and how it's not our way and in our time But Father, may we remember your goodness to us in the past. May we see your blessings to us in the present. And may we trust you to continue to bless and provide and deliver and and do your good purpose in our life in the future. May we keep our eyes on you. May we plant and, and anchor our trust in you. May we remember that you have helped us in the past and you're going to help us today and you're going to help us in the future. May we not be known for our grumbling and our complaining, but may we be people of worship. May we be people of praise. May we be people of honor. May we be people who are shining stars in a perverse and crooked generation. May the world look at us and see our God through us. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name belongs the glory, but to your name we want to give glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.